open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 25. We are engaged in this study of the life of David, and uh, it's a study in which we've been examining what makes David a man after God's own heart. That's been our objective with this series, and tonight that brings us to 1 Samuel chapter 25. Now last week, we were in the 24th chapter of 1 Samuel, looking at this incident in which David has the opportunity to kill King Saul if he wants it. He's hiding in a cave that Saul happens to come into, but instead of killing King Saul, he just cuts off a corner of his robe. If you jump to chapter 26, David's going to get another opportunity to do that very same thing. Saul is in pursuit of him. He and his army have fallen asleep in a particular location, and David realizes he has the opportunity to sneak into camp. He takes one of his men with him, and he steals Saul's spear and canteen to demonstrate to Saul that he could have harmed him, but he didn't. So in chapter 24 and 26 of 1 Samuel, David shows great restraint. David shows self-control. But in chapter 25, the chapter that falls between those two events, David has anything but control. David has outrage. David has wrath. David has revenge on the mind. How does that make him a man after God's own heart? Well, think about it. God is described or depicted as possessing anger, which is what David has in this chapter. In Exodus chapter 4 and verse 14, we're told that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses because of Moses' unwillingness to cooperate on the rescue mission to Egypt. And in Mark chapter 3 and verse 5, we're told that Jesus looked around at the Pharisees with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. So we can look at God the Father, we can look at Jesus the Son. Both of them had anger at some point in time, but that's not what makes David a man after God's own heart. Just because God experienced anger, just because Jesus experienced anger, doesn't mean that the anger David experiences is comparable to theirs. In fact, it's far from it, because David's anger is unrighteous. God's anger, Jesus' anger, are righteous. See, the key is that God is slow to anger, routinely described throughout the Bible as being slow to anger. That means that God does not overreact or become angry quickly. That means that he is patient, that he is controlled, that his anger is purposeful. God's anger is always directed at unrighteousness. Our anger is more self-seeking and self-serving than that. And so in order to avoid sinning in our anger, we must emulate God by heeding the instructions given to us in James chapter 1, verse 19, to be slow to anger. For the anger of man, James goes on to say, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I share all that as an introduction because in reality, in 1 Samuel chapter 25, David is anything but a man after God's own heart. David's handling of the circumstances we're going to read about was not godlike, but it is God-affected because God's going to intervene in the story to prevent David from sinning 
in this particular instance. So we're going to turn our attention to 1 Samuel chapter 25, and what I want to begin with is an introduction to the characters that appear in this story, and there's really only three that we need to focus on. But read with me the first couple of verses here. We'll, we'll start in the second half of verse 1 and read through verse 3. The first half of verse 1 tells us about the death of Samuel. So Samuel's no longer in the picture. I'm not going into detail with that. But the verse picks up with this. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Moan whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. So in these few verses, we're introduced to the three main characters. The first character, as you know, is David. And what's interesting in this episode is that David's not being hunted by Saul right now. David is, is, has got this little bit of a reprieve from Saul's pursuit. And he's got a massive following at this point. He's got at least 600 men who are with him everywhere he goes. Now that's, that's a lot of mouths to feed. And we've got some big families here at Buford. But nobody has to take care of 600 people at one time. And so David now has a great concern. I've got these 600 followers, and we've all got to eat. But they don't all have employment because they're a bunch of uh, outcasts. They're living in caves. They don't have day jobs. And so he's got to figure out a way to provide for them. What we're going to discover is that David becomes sort of a voluntary protection for wealthy businessmen. David apparently used his men to act as a security force for the, for the uh, shepherds and animals that were out in that wilderness area. And that kind of private security was useful in that particular region because it bordered a territory of the Philistines. And the Philistines were notorious for crossing over into the territory of Israel ramsacking everything and taking back spoils. In fact, it happened just two chapters earlier. 1 Samuel chapter 23, David goes and rescues the city of Keilah because the Philistines had attacked it were during threshing season, during harvest, and were confiscating the goods of the people. So David goes and defeats the Philistines, drives them away, and saves that city from the, the plundering of the Philistines. This happened all the time. And so, when a, when a wealthy man had his shepherds out grazing in the wilderness, they were exposed to the Philistine raiders who would come in and steal their flocks. And so, men like David and his soldiers would offer protection to the, the uh, uh, Israelite shepherds and their flocks to keep them from being abducted by the Philistines. And that's what David is essentially doing at this point in his narrative. We are also introduced to a guy named Nabal. Nabal, his name means foolish. That definition, that meaning is given to us in, verse, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 25 and in verse 3. We're specifically told this guy's name is Nabal. It, it, it means foolish. Now, I don't think his mama named him foolish. I imagine that this is a nickname he received over time. 
or possibly a, a name ascribed to him later and then put then utilized in the story in the narrative after the fact because it describes his character i just don't know very many moms who are baby boys born and well he's foolish so nabal is not well respected in fact one of his servants Later in this chapter, uh, down at verse, um, let me find it, 17, one of his own servants, and even his own wife at a later point, will refer to him as a worthless man. We are also given this description of Nabal. He, the ESV in verse 3 says that he was harsh and badly behaved. The New American Standard and the New King James Version say it this way, that he was harsh and evil. The New International Version uses the phrases surly and mean. This guy has a horrible reputation. He is not well respected. He is not well liked. But he is well off. Because that verse 2 of 1 Samuel 25 tells us that he was very rich. He even tells us how many sheep he had and how many goats he had. This guy is wealthy. There's one other detail about him that can be easily overlooked, and it's the last detail provided in verse 3, and that's the fact that he's a Calebite. Now, that means he's a descendant of Caleb. Now, you remember who Caleb is, right? Caleb is one of the two heroes of the wilderness wanderings. He and Joshua were buddies, and they were the two spies of the twelve who said, we can take this land, who said, God's on our side, let's go. And he is a hero, even up to the book of Judges. He's allotted a very particular piece of property in southern Judah when they inhabit the land. And he's revered throughout Israelite history. And so here's this guy with a great reputation, but he has a descendant who has a no reputation. But what's even more interesting about the fact that he is a Calebite is that Caleb was a descendant of Judah, a member of the tribe of Judah. What tribe was David from? Judah. That means David and Nabal are distant relatives. They can trace their lineage through David's great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Hezron, who was himself the grandson of Judah. So they're not close relatives, but they are relatives. You would expect members of your own tribe to treat you better than maybe somebody from another tribe. But that's not the way the story will go. We'll get to that in a minute. The third character we need to mention is Abigail. Abigail is the hero of the, or the heroine of the story. Her name means my father has rejoiced or my father is joyous. In other words, her name means she brought joy to her father at some point, maybe when she was born, maybe when she was married, we don't know, but there's something about her that created joy in her father. And she's going to create joy for David. She's described in verse 3 as discerning and beautiful, according to the English Standard Version, intelligent and beautiful, according to the New American Standard Version and the New International Version, and of good understanding and beautiful in the New King James Version. 
In other words, she's attractive and she's smart. She's the whole package, right? What's interesting about her description is that it's intentionally meant to contrast with her husband's. She's the wife of Nabal, whose name means fool, but she's wise. So there's an intentional contrast between her and Nabal. But there's an intentional correlation between her and David. What I mean by that is she's described as beautiful. David previously had been described as handsome. She's described as wise or intelligent. David also receives that description. It just goes unnoticed because the description of David as being wise appears in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 5 and verse 30. And most of our translations translate that word as successful. It's the same Hebrew word in 1 Samuel 18 translated successful as the Hebrew word translated intelligent here. If you look at the New King James Version of 1 Samuel chapter 18, instead of saying successful, it says that David behaved wisely. It's the same word, just contextually translated differently. David is described as being one who is wise, and so is Abigail. They are a perfect match. That's the point. We'll come back to that later, though. But those are our three main characters in this narrative account. Now, I want you to notice David's polite request that's going to be made here. It's picks, we're going to start in verse 4, and we're going to read through verse 8. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm. And they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. According to 1 Samuel chapter 25 and verse 4, David learned that it's sheep shearing time for Nabal's flock. Now that means nothing to you and I, but that meant something to David. That meant that it was festival time. Sheep shearing was a process that could be occur twice a year, one time in the spring, one time in the fall, and when it occurred, it was accompanied by festivity and celebration. The reason there was celebration and festivity is because the sheared wool would soon lead to the profits for the owner. In other words, it was a time when a sheep owner like Nabal would be in a pleasant and benevolent mood because he's about to come into a great income. And so he has a, 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 a feast going on during the time of the sheep shearing because he's bringing in the prophets. And so David is sending his men at a time he knows when Nabal is going to be in a pleasant and even benevolent mood because it's financial prosperity time. But not only was this a festival time, it was also payment time. Archaeological discoveries in Mesopotamia of contracts between herdsmen and sheep owners during the early part of the second millennium B.C. That means sometime between 2000 B.C. and 1000 B.C. And just so you know, David became king around 1000 B.C. So we're talking about that time period. But archaeological discoveries of contracts between herdsmen and sheep owners in Mesopotamia during this time period 
indicate that herdsmen would typically receive a fee or commission on the sheep and goats that were delivered safely at the shearing. So a shepherd got paid for the number of sheeps, number of sheep that he successfully brought home for the shearing. Now, in this instance, David and his men are not shepherds. They're private security. I want you to skip ahead in 1 Samuel for just a moment. I want you to skip down and notice. I forgot to pull this passage up. Notice uh, what a servant is going to tell Abigail, Nabal's wife, about David and his uh, group of men's involvement. In verse 15 of 1 Samuel 25, a servant tells Abigail, the, the men, referring to David and his men, the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. In other words, this servant is saying, hey, they were an asset to us. They took care of us. They protected us. They didn't do anything wrong to us. They were of a benefit to us. He's acknowledging to Abigail that David and his men deserve something for the service they rendered to the shepherds. And so since David and his men had done no harm to Nabal's, Nabal's shepherds, and none of their flocks went missing while they were among them, David is requesting that Nabal reward him and his men with some unspecified but appropriate gift for the protection that they provided. Now, some see in David's request a, a and I'm quoting a commentator here, a mafia-style racket promising protection in return for payment. But that's not the case for two reasons. One, ancient Near Eastern customs of hospitality, as well as Old Testament laws, suggest that Nabal who is able to provide a gift, is under obligation to provide a gift. In particular, Nabal had violated the law, the Mosaic law, by withholding payment for services rendered. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 15 says, Deuteronomy 24, verse 15, You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it lest he cry against you to the Lord, and you be guilty of sin. In other words, fail, under Mosaic law, failing to pay somebody what they're due in a timely manner was sinful. But Nabal didn't just refuse to pay David for services rendered. He also failed to be hospitable. And in that culture, in that day and age, that's a big deal. Because David and his men would be considered poor in that time period. They had no income. They had no jobs. They had no form of making money. They were just a group of guys, outcasts from society, trying to make it out in the wilderness. They're essentially going to be destitute, living off the land. And they're offering their services to these shepherds in expectation that they'll be provided for in some capacity by someone who's better off than they are. And so Nabal, who was very rich, we're told, would be expected, to use the words uh, that Nehemiah gave to his um, subjects in Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 10, he was expected to send portions to anyone who has nothing. So there's this expectation that Nabal's not living up to. There's this 
Mosaic law that Nabal's not living up to. For that reason, we can't view this as David doing something illegal here, or David doing something mafia-like, as one commentator said. The other thing we need to note is that David's messengers were instructed to approach Nabal in a very humble and respectful manner. Like, pay attention to how David sent his men to address Nabal. You'll see this particularly in verse uh, 6, 7, and 8, where he instructs them to pronounce a blessing on Nabal. First and foremost, when you get there, first thing you do is you pronounce a greeting that blesses Nabal. Notice it in verse 6. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. They're approaching Nabal with respect, with a blessing from the Lord. Not only do they approach him with that kind of respect and humility, but notice they don't ask for anything specific. Look at what they ask for. Down in verse 8. Please give whatever you have at hand. They're not even asking for him to go uh, search out through his house and bring out the best of the best. Just whatever you got, whatever. They're asking for crumbs. They're asking for, the, for, for whatever is available right now, not asking him to go set aside something or to go fetch something, but whatever you got, we'll take, we'll take anything. They don't have a set payment plan. They're just going to take whatever is offered. There's no parameters on what he could give. And there is, there is a, a treaty-like approach to their language here. They refer to themselves as Nabal's servants. They refer to David as, Nab as Nabal's son. Notice that language. It's been observed that their approach is an invitation to Nabal to enter into a regulated covenant with David. A, a, relation, a covenant relationship with David whereby Nabal is greater and David is lesser. Nabal is like father, David is like son. David's men are like servants to Nabal. Every aspect of this approach is intended to show that Nabal is a respected man that David is subservient to. But all that is lost on Nabal because Nabal, Nabal does not respond favorably. Look at verses 9 through 12 with me of 1 Samuel 25. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David. And then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him of this. Nabal scoffs at David's request. It didn't matter how humble, how respectful how subservient they were in their approach. Nabal didn't care. Nabal, in fact, implied that David and his men were nothing more than a band of rogue slaves who had broken away from their masters. He did not want to share his wealth 
or behave benevolently at all. Ultimately, Nabal was just being selfish. And it's evident by the abundant of first-person pronouns that he used in his response. Did you notice that? Verse 11, Shall I take my bread, my water, my meat, that I have killed for my shears, and give it to men whom come from I do not know where? That's seven different first-person pronouns in one sentence. Because all Nabal cares about is me. And it's also worth noting where this is all taking place. Do you remember where Nabal is shearing his sheep? Do you remember what town it was? Carmel. He was a man of Moan, but he's doing his sheep shearing in Carmel. They're about a mile apart, for the record. But does anybody know the last time Carmel got mentioned in the Bible? Anyone want to take a guess? 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15 is the account of Saul's orders from God to annihilate the Amalekites. And Carmel gets mentioned in verse 12 of the 15th chapter. It has to do with when Samuel is going to find Saul, and he can't find him. And Samuel's told, oh yeah, Saul went down to Carmel to build a statue to himself. In other words, Carmel is associated with this self-aggrandizement, this self-interest, this, this focus on me for both King Saul and for Nabal. And it's possible that Nabal, being from this particular region where the Amalekites used to be a threat and Saul had defeated the Amalekites, it may be that he, along with other residents of the area, were inclined to be loyal to Saul. And maybe that's why he rebuffed David. Saul was their hero. He drove away the Amalekites who were on their southern border. We honor Saul, not you, David. Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There's a possibility, at least, that the reason Nabal is antagonistic toward David is because he is pro-Saul. David's men return from their encounter with Nabal, and they report to David all that Nabal did and said. And that's where David's anger is ignited. Look at verse 13, 1 Samuel chapter 25. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. You think David's going to negotiate? You think David has an intention to sit down and have some peace talks with uh, Nabal here? David's anger is at an all-time high at this moment. His reaction is not a very godly reaction to the circumstances. And I want to make a few observations about David here because we often have a tendency to react to being wrong the way David is reacting right here. First, I want you to notice with David's reaction, his reaction excluded God. Not once does David consult with God regarding the proper course of action here. 
He's got Gad the prophet in his entourage. He's got Abiathar the priest with the ephod in his entourage. But not once is he calling either of them to help give him guidance. Now last week as we studied about David's movements avoiding King Saul and eventually his, his interaction with Saul in the cave, and we, we noted how throughout, particularly 1 Samuel 23, David routinely sought God's guidance before he acted. He, he sought God's guidance before he went and helped the city of Keilah. He sought God's guidance before he left the city of Keilah. Four different times in 1 Samuel 23, David will consult with God before he moves. But here, there is no consultation with God whatsoever. Not once does he ask God, hey, should I go take care of Nabal? Not once does he ask God, hey, is Nabal going to get his? Not once does he approach God for any insight or any guidance on this occasion. And I think that's part of why this almost ended poorly for him. And David's reaction, just like us, when we, re- when we react vengefully, when we react angrily in an unrighteous way, it's typically because we haven't gone to God first. It's typically we, we didn't handle that situation by consulting with God beforehand. But also notice this, David's reaction escalated quickly. Instead of going, going to confront Nabal and negotiate a solution, David's first response is to instruct 400 of his men to grab a weapon. That doesn't sound like a negotiating tactic. That sounds like a demolition tactic. And it was because... As we find out in verse 22, we haven't got to that verse yet, but David in verse 22 is, is speaking, to him, speaking to his men. He's basically venting what he feels and thinks in the moment. And in 1 Samuel 25, verse 22, we find out that it was David's intent to kill all the males in Nabal's house. David was going there full well expecting and wanting to kill people. David's anger went from, oh, I'm offended, to I'm going to kill people very quickly. Now, hopefully we don't react that quickly with a desire to kill people. It's interesting, though, because in this one verse, in the Hebrew language, it contains the word sword three times. And as one commentator pointed out, those references reveal a dependence on armed force that we have not seen in David before. David's never been one up to this point focused on physical altercation, focused on military might. Even when he faced off with Goliath, he didn't carry a sword. He took a sling and stones. He did not rely on his weaponry or his might or his military prowess or his soldiers when he faced off with Goliath. In fact, in 1 Samuel 17, verse 47, he said, The Lord saves not with sword and spear. And the battle is the Lord's. He will give you into my hand. David let his emotions escalate so rapidly that he's skipping over his own theology 
about who wins and who brings victory. He was not slow to anger. He was not self-controlled. He was not even patient. And that's evident from the fact that David's reaction ignored the long term. This was a critical moment because David nearly took a course of action that would have compromised his status as a man after God's own heart. It would have made him no better than Saul. Remember, this is one chapter after he spared Saul's life in a cave. And it's one chapter before he spares Saul's life as Saul slept. Here in the midst of these amazing moments of self-control, these amazing moments of trusting God's timing, David has abandoned all that. It's as if in this moment, he had forgotten God's promises. He had forgotten God's expectations. He had lost sight of the long-term and focus solely on the short term. And this isn't the only time David will do that. You could bring Bathsheba in the equation on that regard. But if David had gone through with this, he would have been just like Saul, who had been trying to take his life all because he had become more popular. So the irony is that David was acting in the very same way that his archenemy had acted toward him. But David is spared any wrong because of Abigail's intervention. So we're going to engage in a long reading here. We're going to read from verse 14 through verse 31. So bear with me. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us. And we suffered no harm, and we did not miss anything when we were in the fields, as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us by night and by day, all the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this, and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house, and he is such a worthless man that one not, cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste and took two hundred loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and two hundred cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that is that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent, 
Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember me, your servant. This is an incredibly unique event because as one commentator pointed out, Abigail's initiative and independence were rare for a married woman in the ancient Near East. And it was even downright scandalous since it entailed a clandestine meeting, clandestine, I know I mispronounced that, meeting with one of her husband's enemies. But at the same time, Abigail's encounter with David is one of the most remarkable female-initiated encounters between a man and a woman in the Bible. Look at what Abigail did, or, or really think about what she did to diffuse the situation between David and Nabal. First, she humbled herself before David. She got off of her donkey and bowed down to him, fell at his feet, which was an act of re- that was a means of requesting mercy, and she referred to herself as his servant and him as her lord. In fact, throughout her speech, she referred to herself as a servant at least six times and referred to David as Lord at least eight times. She won his ear by treating him respectfully, unlike her foolish husband. But not only did she humble herself before David, she also took responsibility. Without excusing her husband's acts, she accepted the blame for David's mistreatment by a member of her family. She's claiming that it's her fault all this happened. Now, wives, I know you're sitting there thinking, I wouldn't do that. But pay attention to to how she explains that it's her fault. Basically, she says that she knew her husband was an idiot, and she wasn't present to stop him. That's, that's the gist of her argument. She indicated that it was her fault because she should have been there to run interference for her husband because she knew what kind of man he was. Now that's an amazing woman. We'll come back to that. But not only does she take responsibility... She also takes time to remind David who he is. She reminded David of the promise God made to David regarding the throne. She reminded David of his reputation. She spoke in the future tense about his reign, reminding him that it's coming. 
but she also spoke in the present tense about his reputation. She didn't say that David fought past tense the Lord's battles. She said that David fights present tense the Lord's battles. In other words, she's reminding David that he is an agent of the Lord, that he possessed a reputation for dealing with God's conflicts, God's ways. He is a representative of God, and he has a future as God's agent on the throne. She spends verse after verse reminding David who he is, as if to sober him up in the moment. She brought David back to the reality of his identity. And look at how David responds in verse 32 through 35. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to me. Blessed be your discretion. Blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hunting you, from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. First off, notice, David credits God with sending her. David acknowledges that she is from God, that God is intervening through her by bringing her into his life. But really notice that last statement he makes. I have obeyed your voice. In that day and age, for a male to obey the voice of a female was a big, big deal. In this moment, the wisest person is not David, certainly not Nabal, it's Abigail. The way she intervened for her husband, she didn't necessarily defend her husband, but she did protect her husband. And the way she calmed David, the way she brought David back to reality, is a beautiful, wise investment on her part. And as a result of Abigail's wise advice, David's anger relented, and he was prevented from making a huge mistake. If he had killed Nabal, Would God have looked at him differently? If he had killed Nabal in this act of vengeance, would he have heard the same thing that Saul had heard back in chapter 15? I can't, can't let you stay on the throne. I'm going to have to take it away from you. You've disobeyed me. See, Abigail handled this situation so brilliantly that David now knew she was an asset to him. So when Nabal providentially died, and we are told that, that God brought about his demise, when Nabal providentially died, David proposed. Look at verse 38 through 42. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. When, Nabal, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. 
When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. Why did David marry Abigail? Because in her wisdom, she kept him from making a horrible mistake. She acted without her husband's knowledge, but in her husband's interests. Who wouldn't want a wife like that? David saw in Abigail a spouse who would protect him, a spouse who would challenge him when necessary, a spouse who would correct him when necessary, a spouse who made him a better man, a spouse who would help him remain in the favor of the Lord. That's the kind of spouse you want, isn't it? Interestingly, David's selection of Abigail as a wife is, contra- is contrasted with his selection of Bathsheba as a wife. Abigail is described as intelligent and beautiful. That terminology is in t- intended to indicate that her beauty is more than skin deep. Meanwhile, David spotted Bathsheba bathing, and she's described as very beautiful as well. But it's apparent that in that instance, It's only her physical attraction that David's interested in. But there was something much deeper that led him to Abigail. David's proposal to Abigail teaches us that it is in our best interest to surround ourselves with people that make us better, people that hold us accountable, and people that are not afraid to confront and correct us. People who will calm our anger. You know, shouldn't one of David's soldiers or one of his trusted allies have said the things that Abigail said to him? But they didn't. And I believe he saw worth in a woman that risked her own life to protect her husband as well as her husband's enemy. And he wanted that kind of woman by his side. And ultimately, I think David learned from this episode in his life. Because David will write Psalm chapter 4. And verse 4 of Psalm chapter 4 is the source of one of the most well-known passages in the entire Bible about anger. David says in Psalm chapter 4 and verse 4, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Now you may recognize those words as the source of Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26, which says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. When Paul shared those words, he was sharing the words of someone who almost sinned in their anger. But Psalm 4 continues beyond verse 4, and in my opinion shows some similarities to the incident with Nabal and Abigail. Going back to Psalm chapter 4. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? That reminds me of the fact that David complained in verse 21 of 1 Samuel 25 that Nabal had returned me evil for good. Who will show us some good? I can hear David saying that as he contemplated the way Nabal treated him. 
Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abounded. Do you remember the gifts that Abigail gave David? They included two skins of wine and five sayas of parched grain. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And who did David give credit to stopping his vengeful anger? The Lord, who sent Abigail to intervene. The text doesn't tell us that David wrote this after his interactions with Nabal and Abigail. But I can envision it. I can imagine that in this moment where David's anger almost made him sin, and God intervened through this wonderful woman named Abigail, that it caused David to sit down and ponder his own anger and God's protection. The big takeaway for us tonight is to understand that anger can lead us into sin if unchecked. And just as that passage in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 tells us to be angry and do not sin, the very next verse says, do not give the devil a foothold. Maybe, just maybe, Anger has the ability to compromise us more than anything else. Maybe, just maybe, the emotion of anger is more dangerous than we realize. In this moment, a man after God's own heart almost compromised his title just because he was angry. The same guy that resisted King Saul so many times. The same guy that had the faith to take down Goliath. Almost lost it all over anger. How much more so you and I? Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, we come before you grateful for our opportunity to study your word. We're thankful for the example of David's life that can apply to us in so many ways. And Lord, we recognize that like David, we too can struggle with anger. We pray that in those moments where anger is getting the best of us, that you will send an Abigail to us to help us recognize our flaw and the danger that's ahead of us. Lord, help us to understand the difference between righteous anger such as what you have, and unrighteous anger that plagues us mortals. Lord, help us to be angry about the things you're angry about and help us to show restraint, self-control, and patience when it comes to the things that we get angry about. Most of all, Lord, help us to recognize that everything we do represents you and we need to be cognizant of that every day. Thank you, Lord, for sending your Son to die for our sins, including those sins that come as a result of our anger, and help us to never take that for granted. We love you, Lord, and it is through Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.